Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom, and this is the kickoff to our second season. Um, our guest today is someone that I had on top of my list to reach out to as soon as we began this podcast about a year ago. And I'm so excited to have him on here. You've never heard of Dan Pink. He's the author of several provocative, best-selling books from about business, work, creativity, and behavior. Some of my favorites are Drive, The Surprising Truth of What Motivates Us, uh, to sell as human, the spreading truth about m moving others, uh, and win the scientific secrets of perfect timing. Um, we spend a lot of time today talking about his forthcoming book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. That's a fascinating conversation. We dive into a little bit about Dan's background, as well as his passions uh, and why he does what he does. Um, and then we talked you know, in detail about the power of regret and how Instead of using regret to keep us in our own personal prisons, it's figuring out a way and a system to use them for our good, to take bold chances moving forward. And so uh, Dan's a ph phenomenal human being, uh, awesome thought leader and a great conversationalist. Uh, I was thinking about joking with him about his other career could be uh, doing MBA commentating or something because he's got a great voice for this. So it's an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed it and I know you will too. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, Dan, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate you being here. Hey, it's a pleasure. Uh, I, I, the first question we start with every guest is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Wow, those are, those are two difficult questions. Uh, who am I? Um, well, maybe I'm overstating my own complexity, but I think that I'm multiple things. So I am a, uh, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a citizen, uh, I'm a writer, um, I'm a mediocre athlete. So in that order, that's who I am. Uh, why do, so the second one is, why do I love what I do? Or what do I love about what I do? Yeah, what do you love about what you do? I think what I love about what I do as a writer is uh, I get a lot of pleasure out of figuring stuff out, um, out of, um, you know, taking a tangle of material and trying to make sense of it and bringing some clarity to it. Uh, even though in the process of doing that is often painful. There are moments of transcendence within that process that keep me going. Have you always felt that kind of passion or is that something that kind of evolved over kind of your journeys and really cool story of life? Yeah, it's a good question. It's an interesting question. I think it's a very revealing question about how we become who we continue to become. Uh, that's something that I think evolved. Uh, I don't know if it evolved. It might have always been there, but I think it's something that I discovered. It wasn't something that was obvious to me from the get go. Yeah, I, I asked because I, I talked to Jeffrey Canada uh, recently, and he was one of the few that said, oh, I've got, you know, I knew by the time I was like 12 or 13, you know, I didn't have that. Most folks, I didn't. And so I'm always curious. And I know, you know, look at your background, you know, you, you aspired to go to a really amazing undergrad institution and did the same thing for your law degree. And I feel like I'm just curious when you were pursuing those, what did you think you were trying to become or where did you think your life was going to lead prior or during your uh, education? Yeah, uh, believe it or not, early in my life or, you know, let's say teenager and into college and even a little post-college, I was I was uh, deeply interested in politics and and I ended up I started working there and then I discovered that to your earlier to your earlier question, Dustin, that I, I discovered in actually working there and being in the belly of the beast that that 
wasn't what I wanted to do in part because that wasn't who I was or wasn't who I was aspiring to be or wasn't what I thought I was. And so, so I didn't really become, I mean, there's no late or early in any of this stuff, but I didn't become, I became a quote unquote writer relatively late um, in, in the sense that I didn't start writing for myself full time as a, as my job, as my career, as my work until I was in my mid thirties. Right. I mean, you, I don't know when the transition was, but you were a speechwriter for a president, right? Or a vice president. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, that's a job that a lot of aspiring writers would kill for. Um, was it scary to leave that and maybe the predictable nature of advancement there to jump out on your own and start becoming an author? Yeah, it was a little bit scary, but but again, I made that decision. I mean, I, I've been working for myself now for coming up on twenty five years, and I I made the decision to do that in a very metho- a pretty methodical, careful, risk reducing way. So when I left my job to go work for myself because of that, again to your earlier question, when I I had this moment when I was you know working at these fairly demanding political jobs where I was always writing on the side. And it finally occurred to me that what I was doing on the side, which is essentially I considered kind of a hobby, was kind of who I was and what I should be doing with my life. And so when I decided to say, hey, let's give that a whirl. Um, and there's a and, and if you're actually a writer, if you're a real writer, being a speech writer can be really, really frustrating because you're not writing your own stuff. You're writing in the voice and the ideas and for the agenda of somebody else. And so if you actually are care about your own set of ideas and your own voice, then you end up inevitably bristling against that job, even though it's a cool and really interesting, it's a really, it's a cool and really interesting job. But, but the, when I decided to go out on my own, it was not this kind of wild and woolly risk. I mean, um, my wife kept her job and her health insurance. Uh, we actually made sure that we we ended up through complete luck. We bought a small house in Washington, D.C. at the absolute bottom of the D.C. real estate market. I mean, you could not have planned it any better. So we had a relatively inexpensive house, um, a relatively inexpensive house, my wife had a steady job and health insurance, and we said, let's try this for a couple of years and see if it works. And actually, as a transition there, and I, I say this for people, I, you have a lot of educators, obviously, there's some people who aspire to be work for themselves. I mean, I think you have to be very smart and deliberate and conscious of risk when you do this. And so not only did we not give up her income and her health insurance, but I also, in the very first year that I did this, I did uh, corporate speech writing on the side, where I would, you know, would would do, you know, like speeches for CEOs and things, which I hated. <laughs> but it paid for, you know, diapers and oatmeal and class and, and gas for the car. Yeah, hopefully it also led to, uh, you know, I, I can imagine how tough that would be. But hopefully, it led to a group of folks who were excited to to bring you in once you found your voice uh, in the marketplace. Not really. <laughs> it didn't? <laughs> Are you serious? I would hope that it would like, that would be like your first like five open doors there. Nope. 
Oh, wow. That's that's a whole other conversation we can have. My parents uh, ran political campaigns growing up. So your political background is interesting to me. Uh, the fact that you got out and got into motivation. So my stepmom was a banker. And I guess uh, BB&T Bank on the East Coast bought all their top performers on uh, your drive book back in the day. So that's yeah. given to me. And so uh, my my thought is I, I am driven. There's a guy that uh, I read in college named Rick Warren. And that's where I wrote my uh, mission statement. Uh, read a book called Purpose Driven Life and read, made my own personal mission statement off of it. And purpose to me and what motivates people has always been a passion of mine and that that's clear in everything you write and everything you do. And so, um, you may not feel it. I, I feel it. So I know that's sort of some folks are, I, I'm just curious, what, when did you know you wanted to dive into human behavior or you were fascinated with trying to help people figure out purpose? Well, those are two different things, uh, at least in, at least in, at least in my view. But I'll, I'll answer the first one. So uh, I've actually always been really, really interested in human behavior, even as a little kid. Um, I, I ended up majoring in college in linguistics, uh, which I which I really liked, and I liked the intellectual challenge of that field. Which it's a it's a it's a social science, a very mathematical social science. But I took uh, my very first the very first fall I showed up in college. I took introductory psychology. I thought it was the best course I ever had. I thought it was great. I loved it. Uh, even as a little kid, not a little kid, but as a teenager, I would I would read books about that and and wonder about that. And at some level. Um, I guess I was just too much of a, you know, uh, sort of a risk averse middle class kid from the middle of America. But, you know, if I had to rewind my life, I think it's possible that I would have been an academic that I would have instead of like writing about people doing the research, I would have done the research myself and gone and become a, a you know, social psychologist or, you know, so, something like that and become an academic myself. I didn't even consider it. I mean, truly, you know, it didn't barely even didn't even consider it really when I was when I was growing up. But that but that was actually a, I've always been really interested in that. Now, as for the purpose, um, it's interesting. I, that's less conscious. That's more of a discovery, because what I think I realize in that when I was writing books and let's really, really books is that if you actually interview people, if you actually think, if you actually do the research that's always where it led. It always led back to purpose. It wasn't something that I wasn't trying to impose that consciously on what I was doing. It was simply in the process of discovering, in the process of learning. That's where it inevitably led. I'll give you one example of this. I wrote a book 20 years ago called Free Agent Nation which was about the rise of people working for themselves. This is, you know, before the gig economy and whatnot. And I thought I started out writing that book thinking that I was writing a book about economics, that this was about the inexorable forces of information age capitalism that were, you know, making the firm less germane, making the individual more germane. Da, da, da. So I had this elaborate in my head, this elaborate kind of, Tofflerian economic argument going on about why this was happening. And then I went out and to write this book, I went out and I interviewed people all over the country, hundreds of people all over the country who had made this decision or been forced to make this decision to go out on their own. And nobody talked about that. What did they talked about? They talked about purpose. They talked about meaning. They talked about living a life of significance. They talked about 
You know, they didn't they didn't. I mean, some of them probably use the Rick Warren formulation of a purpose driven life. But most of them at least echoed that in some many of them echoed that in some way. So this was not a story about economic forces. This was about a fundamental human needs, fundamental human aspirations, fundamental human desires. And so that's so so, so everything I've written, because I try to go into it, the reasonably open mind seems to lead in that direction. So that's how I got to purpose. The, you know, we've had 30 some odd, maybe 40 some odd guests at this point. And any thought leader that we've had who talks about motivation always lands back to you need to know your why, you need to know your purpose, you need to know your mission. Um, and so it's interesting to hear you say that you kind of, you know, did all your studies and landed there. Um, I've read uh, an interview about you talking to someone recently or in the last few months about uh, your big P purpose and little P purpose. Oh, yeah. Explain uh, what that is. Sure. Yeah, that's something, again, um, you know, what I try to it, – it's, again, it, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I under, I'm sort of understanding the method, your method here, because a lot – that initial question about, like, why do you love what you do ends up actually informing the answers to these other questions. And so <laughs> – and so um, – and so, so again, for me, when I start working on a book, I go in with a loose set of ideas of what I think the answer is and whatnot. But I try to remain very open to what the facts and the evidence tell me. And, and in that sense, I will change my mind, uh, which is, a, you know, which is a good and, and healthy thing because I just want to get to the truth there's some close approximation of the truth now when i wrote about purpose i in a book called drive i actually didn't get it right the first time which is kind of frustrating i was thinking about purpose as one thing and as you say dustin it's really two things and and here's how i look at it and forgive that lengthy prelude but that's the the, the point is is that sort of there's a level of frustration in that my first bite at this apple i didn't quite get and then later on, I was like, oh, that's what the, the truth is. And, and here's how when we think about purpose, particularly in terms of organizations, whether it's a school, whether it's a, a private company, whatever. Um, uh, when we think of purpose, we think of big. Honking, transcendent purpose. I am. So, saving endangered species, I am arresting the climate crisis. I am uh, housing the unhoused. And that's good. That's all great. And, and, that's, and that is a powerful motivator for people. The problem is, is that that's not the only kind of purpose. There's a smaller P purpose, which is simply, did I help a teammate get a project out the door? Did I solve that client's problem? Was there a kid in the hallway who was lost and I pointed her to the right room? You know, just like 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 basic day to day things that where you make someone's life a little bit better. And the way that I think about this is that, you know, we can think of capital P purpose as making a difference. So that's like big and transcendent and, and small P purpose is like just making a contribution. Did you make some kind of small contribution today? And I think what the evidence tells us, both the academic evidence and my own research in reporting is that they're both really important. 
And at some level, we've over-indexed on capital P purpose, making a difference, and under-indexed on small p purpose, making a contribution. And so the good news in that is that you have different ways of accessing purpose, and that small p purpose is easier to get every day. It's easier to get every day. So for me, okay, so I'll give you an example from my own life. So, so for me, so I just finished a... Um, I just finished a book. I think it's a good book, and I and I think it's gonna you know be useful to people, but um, it doesn't come out for like you know six months, and you know and and I want to try to. I'm making sort of my my audacious purpose is to reclaim the the concept of regret and da 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 da. All right, it's not gonna happen today, you know. However, I could answer, and I've done it already this morning, early this morning. You know, answer an email from a reader who had a question. And because they were confused about something and it was very clear to me why they were confused and it was very easy to explain away the confusion. It's like, okay, great. There's a contribution right there. And so that purpose sort of gives me the, 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 the drive to keep, to keep going. Did that, did that answering that email this morning change the world in any way? No. Did it reclaim a, a, a concept in the broader conversation that human beings are having around the planet? No. Did it help that one guy in, I think it was in Florida? Did it help that one dude in Florida? Yeah. And that's all right. So as a leader, what can we do? I mean, you know, we've got folks that are leading schools or leading districts that are listening. And, you know, all of us, especially at the start of a new school year, are thinking that big P. I'm curious what, what type of advice you have for folks are thinking, all right, well, I've got people locked in in the big P, I believe, for our schools or our district. Yeah. But those little P's, uh, my folks need to be having wins every day so they don't yeah. get burned out. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, great, it's, it's, it's a great point. So I don't want to diminish the big P. It's still important. All I want to say is that it's not the only thing. Right. Uh, and, and I think with schools, you have the big P baked in to the right. enterprise itself. So a school is not, say, a, you know, it's not like a... Um, you know, here's my stapler, right? It's not, it's not a staple company. You know, it's hard to, I'd have to break a sweat to find the transcendent big P purpose of manufacturing staples, right? Um, um, so I, what I have seen in organizations that actually have that big P purpose integrated into the very, their very existence. So whether it's a, uh, a school or whether it's a NGO or whatever, uh, is that they actually don't talk, they don't bring that capital P purpose to the surface enough. So it, so so they should actually you know make sure that they don't give it short shrift. Beyond that, if you're a school leader, I mean you can get your small P purpose in all kinds of ways. Uh, you could help a teacher solve his or her problem, or or give a teacher instruction on hey here's how you deal with that parent, or here's how you deal with that kind of pedagogical issue. You know, it could be a small passing in the hallway conversation that lightens the load on that particular teacher. It could be that you have a conversation with a student, maybe on the playground, where you help a student resolve some kind of squabble with a friend or something like that. So, 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 so these, these small day to day encounters that make someone's life better in that moment. And that don't immediately yield a world-changing outcome. That's cool. You can you need those. And then you make another really good point. It, again, I look at these things almost like. I mean, I tend to look at it sort of a little too, uh, you know, maybe slightly too analytically. But I think it's a useful frame for understanding this. Is that I often look at things of like, you know, like an economist in a way, like like 
are these elements in our lives, are they priced properly? And so, and so, um, and so at some level, um, um, we have, we have, um, uh, overpriced big, hairy, audacious goals. They're good, but I think that the price is a little too high on those things. Whereas we've underpriced small wins. So that's like, so, so what you want to do is like, if you have, you know, if it's like, if it's a stock, like this is under, you want to buy small wins because the value of small wins is going up. And so we, we haven't valued small wins enough and we valued big hair audacious goals a little too much, I think, even though they're valuable. It's just a yeah. matter of the level of pricing. Yeah, to your point, I mean, I, I think about, you know, back my team's at times a teacher, the, my district, my, my wife's in right now. You know, if I'm a teacher there, I know I've got to help my kids increase their academic scores. Like, I know that's where the pressure is. That's what my purpose is. But that can't be a teacher's only identity. And I feel like so many people get burned out because they're not listening or creating a culture of celebrating the little P along the way. And those P's stacked together make a massive difference for everybody. Yeah. Particularly getting to the outcome of the big P probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I think that they, they have uh, they have an accumulating power. I think that's I think that's I think that's a very good point. They have accumulating power in that they cascade. Um, that is, they, it's 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 even more. Again, yeah, it, it's it's not a linear climb. It's a it's not quite exponential, but it's it's not linear. It's it's a little bit. It's it's quasi. It's it's a small exponent. So it's 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 rising. It's rising uh, faster than like a one to one linear relationship there but because they cascade that is small wins beget small wins which beget small wins and so i i really think that we have undervalued that and there's some good literature on that i mean carl like wrote about this uh 40 years ago uh i'm a big fan of the work of Teresa amabile at harvard business school who about 10 years ago wrote a, a book that summarizes a lot of this research called the progress principle which shows that the single biggest day-to-day -day motivator on the job is making progress and meaningful work. When people make even small progress, they are uh, fortified, they are renewed, they come back the next day better able to do their work and do it well. That's fascinating. I, um, you know, I assume most people, I mean, plenty of people I've talked to and they've heard of you, the drive always seems to be, even if they've read your other books, they drive seems to be the first thing that people link to. And you just said a few moments ago, I mean, it's going to be a few months before your next book comes out. But I think at least what I've read about it at this point, that really could be a life changing work for so many people, because I feel like the world gets paralyzed in their own prison by regrets. And so I'm just curious, yeah. how did you choose to tackle this topic? Um, I actually, on that, you know, I don't know if this is a book that I would have written 20 years ago. Um, I think it was just the accumulation of living and thinking and, um, you know, getting a little bit older when, you know, if you, if you look about your life, when you're say 25, it just seems like everything's in the future and there's not much in the past. And then when you get to my age, you're like, well, wait a second. They're about equal. There's like that, that future is like gotten a little shorter and that past has gotten a little longer. And hmm, 
what you know and so and so so that was part of it and then also i just think for me the catalytic thing which is bizarre and maybe doesn't reflect well on me is that when my elder daughter graduated from college for whatever reason during there were these all these ceremonies and a lot of waiting and so forth and i i just started thinking about my own regret my own regrets about being in college and um and that got me interested and then one of the things that i one of the things that i one of my principles there's an old adage in journalism which is always extrapolate always extrapolate from your own experiences you're not that special so if i if i if i said well if i'm thinking about regret other people are and then i started looking into some of the research on it and i found it an endlessly fascinating topic and i also found well i mean i i i have a different i have a different view of it than i think is the the conventional view um so I was always excited to try to see if that was right. Yeah. So tell us what, what's your viewpoint on it. And I feel like, uh, I, I read another, uh, interview where someone was asking you about the difference between regret and disappointment, which I thought was uh, a deep question. Uh, and so I'm curious about that, how you landed there of the difference between regret and disappointment. Oh, that's an easy one. The difference between regret and disappointment is that, is that, um, is that, uh, with regret, it's, uh, uh, the only, the only way something becomes regret is if you have agency and you're at fault. Um, and so, so, so for instance, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. I'm an NBA fan. I live here in Washington, DC. So I'm disappointed that the Washington, uh, wizards didn't win, didn't come anywhere close to winning the NBA championship last year or any year for the last 40 years. But, um, but I can't regret that. I can't regret that they did it because it's like, I, I don't play for them. I don't coach them. I don't run the team or anything like that, but I can regret, um, I can regret that. Uh, okay, give you an example. So I, I can regret that I, um, like last week, went four consecutive days without running. That's totally on me, right? I'm not disappointed. You know, um, I'll give you the best example, Dustin. This is I'll give you the best example. Uh, it's from uh, uh, Janet Landman at the University of Michigan. She yes. says, "Imagine this scenario. This is the difference between regret and disappointment. You've got a little kid, and the little kid loses a tooth." And then she goes to sleep. Before going to sleep, she puts her tooth under her pillow. When she wakes up the next morning, looks under her pillow, the tooth is still there. She's disappointed, but the parents regret that they forgot to leave a prize from the tooth fairy. So that's the difference between regret and disappointment. And so when you think about your take on regret, um, first off, we start talking about sports. Uh, I used to go to all Brad Bill's high school games here in St. Louis, and he was on my cousin's AAU team. Oh wow! So I got a chance to watch a lot of them. So I'm a I'm a distant fan of your Wizards right now, as long as Brad Beal's there. Well, yeah, I mean Bradley Beal is a um, Bradley Beal is I think un, I think his talents are under recognized in the broader in the broader NBA. I've always thought that that he and again this is a room emptier for people who are not NBA fans. I always thought that Bradley Beal doesn't get enough attention because he's so good and he makes it look so effortless that people don't realize just how crazy hard what it is that he is what it is that he's doing whereas you have other players who are a little bit you know draw a little bit more attention to themselves and and with him it's like he does these outrageously these outrageous things and just like you know runs back down the court i mean he so um but anyway, we can we can talk about the. Uh, I uh, there was just there was just they just came out with a new NBA. The day that we're talking yesterday, they came out with a new NBA 
schedule and the the latest like sports analytics folks are projecting the Wizards will win 33 of 82 games next season. So I have a lot to look forward to. Oh, I don't know if they're going to get Dame either, huh? <laughs> they got yeah. all those trade pieces. I don't know if they're going to be able to do anything with it. All right, we need to get back on topic. I could talk about that forever. So your your take on regret, uh, what what have you learned? Or what's the, the, the thesis that um, you think is going to uh, change the way people... No, there, 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 there are a few things. Uh, number one, I mean, the main thing about regret itself is that, is that well, a lot of us have these... We, there's this very American philosophy of no regrets. I don't have any regrets, no regrets. And that's nonsense. That is absolute, utter, unhealthy bunk. Everybody has regrets. The only people who don't have regrets are five-year-olds, people with neurodegenerative diseases, and sociopaths. Everybody else has regrets. It's part of being human. And if you look at the research, um, there's some really fascinating work about uh, what emotions we talk about in our lives. And, uh, and, uh, what emotions are, we're conscious of and, but also what emotions that we express. Um, the, the top rated negative emotion, the, the negative emotion that gets the most airtime is regret. Uh, it's the second most mentioned emotion of any kind after love. Um, and so regret is a fundamental part of being human. Now, done wrong, regret can lead to, rumination and stasis and whatnot but done right and there's a systematic way to do this we it can there's a a pile of evidence showing that if we reckon with our regrets properly we can make better decisions we can perform at a higher level on a whole range of tasks and get this because here's where the evidence goes once again we can deepen the meaning and purpose in our life. Um, and so um, and, and so this goes a little bit, Dustin, to something we were talking about earlier. At some level, again, let's think about this pricing problem. There are certain things in our midst that are overpriced and certain things that are underpriced. And, and in this realm, at least, we have, especially Americans, we have overpriced positive emotions and underpriced negative emotions. Negative emotions serve a purpose. You can't go crazy on them. You can't wallow in them. But negative emotions give us information. They're telling us something. And so simply to say, I don't hear it because I always think positive, blah, 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 is unhealthy. And so what we, so, so a lot of this has to do with how do we deal with negative emotions? And there are three ways to deal with negative emotions. You can say that Feeling is for ignoring. So when I feel a negative emotion, I just ignore it and bat it away. No, that is not productive and healthy. You can also say feeling is for feeling. So you wallow in it. You luxuriate in your negative emotion. That's even worse. Or you can say not feeling is for ignoring or feeling is for feeling. Feeling is for thinking. What's this telling me? What do I learn from this negative emotion? And then if we if we if feeling is for thinking and thinking is for doing a negative emotion like regret, which is the most prominent negative emotion, points us to a positive path. And so what I'm trying to do in some sense is reclaim this negative emotion because paradoxically it can lead to really positive outcomes. Yeah, I think I mean, to me. 
this book, I mean, I, I wish it could come out now because I feel like we're in the midst of the pandemic still, but you know, the last 18 months were incredibly tough on lots of people. And I feel like so many people have spent so much time wallowing in regret or getting stuck yeah. in the same thought pattern that, you know, if you're giving us a tool set of how to break out of that, I think that's really healthy. And I was on a, a, a call recently uh, with a gentleman who thinks that this uh, pandemic, which caused so much heartache, is going to lead to the renaissance. And I believe you had a similar take on what this pandemic could be doing for society, don't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm. I'm not quite on Team Renaissance, but um, but but one of the things that I one of the things that I think is possible. Well, I think there are a couple of things. Number one is that my view is that we inevitably under predict human ingenuity and resilience. And so our prediction was like people are going to be devastated. It's going to be a catastrophe. And I mean, obviously, it, it is on a on a public health level. It's a catastrophe of epic proportions. It's a horrifying thing. More broadly, I actually think that people will show some degree of resilience and that once we come out of this thing, it's it's not going to have this 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 horrible. It's not going to be this millstone around us for um, for an enormous amount of time. Um, especially if we say, okay, what is this? What has this shown us? What has the, what has this experience? What has this, what has this shown us? I also think that it is leading to some kind of reckoning. You see it now in the job market where you have people who are, you know, I, I think the last data I saw from, from PricewaterhouseCoopers was something like, um, two out of three people in the U S workforce now are contemplating leaving. And why are they leaving? They're basically, they're leaving in part because a large part because of purpose. This job is not who I am. This job is not treating me fairly. This job is not, you know, life is short. And do I want to be spending all my time working at company X when what I really should be contributing to the world is something else completely different? Yeah, I, I mean, I've seen that with a number of my friends. I think it's powerful data. I didn't realize two out of three are contemplating leaving. That feels. Oh, like yeah, no, it's crazy right now. I mean, that, that, that part of that is part of that is that people are frustrated and the uh, the job market is really really good. So I don't know. I'm not sure that's enduring, yeah. but um, but I also feel like there is a degree of you know um, I, I think that people maybe be are fortified a little bit by their some people depending on your job and your level of income and education have a sense that they can actually maybe make it on their own in a way that they didn't two years ago. Uh, last question on regrets. Uh, when, as you kind of, you know, you have a, for those of you, I don't know if you're still using the survey, but you can still find the survey to take, uh, Oh yeah, we're still, we're, we're collecting, we've collected regrets from around the world. We have already 16,000 regrets from 105 countries, um, yeah. on the world regret survey. I encourage people to go, uh, to go take it. And I would say, uh, I don't know if you can share this, but what are the most common regrets that you've seen at this point? Uh, if you bucket them out. There are a lot. Of, I mean, there there is a, a wide array. There is there there there. My argument is that is that um, while we usually look at regrets as like, oh, this is an education regret or a work regret or family regret, I think there's something deeper going on. And um, what you find is you have people. Um, I'll give you one example of that, Dustin. Um, there are just an enormous number of regrets about uh, about boldness, uh, where people are at a juncture. They had an opportunity to be bold or play it safe. 
and they ended up playing it safe and they regretted it. So they didn't start the business. They didn't ask somebody out on a date. They didn't take that trip. Um, what we see, and this is a pretty enduring finding in the academic research, it's, it's true in, my, in the various studies that I've done myself, is that um, regrets of inaction versus regrets of action. So I regret what I didn't do rather than what I did do. Uh, inaction regrets are uh, outnumber action regrets probably by about two to one. Oh, that's powerful. So I'm assuming one of the questions we usually end with, it's one of our last questions, is just either from you know where your head's at right now or best advice you've gotten recently, everyone who comes here is looking for the best way to start making change in their lives. So let's focus on their lives. Uh, I Taking regret, what what's the best advice you have for people um, to make a change in their life right now? Um, I, I think I might go back to that, what we were just talking about, which is that um, uh, chances are very good that you will regret your inaction more than your action. So when in doubt, take that risk, um, it, even though it's a little scary at the beginning. Um, because what I've seen, and, it, and I think the data bear it out, is that while some people regret taking risks, they are the vast minority that most people regret what they didn't do. And so, um, so take, that, take that smart, calculated, take that smart, calculated risk. The chances are um, you're, you're, you are, um, you're not going to regret that uh, years, uh, years now. Uh, years down. I'll give you one other small tactical one for educators, um, which is that the um, uh, the advice that I got in taking like multiple choice tests was that go for your first instinct. Like, don't change your, go for your first instinct, right? Like, oh, I think the answer is A. Then I come back and say, no, it might be C. And everybody says, no, 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 go with your first instinct. Don't go with your first instinct. Um, what the research tells us is that um, is that uh, changing your answer? People change their people don't change their answer because they're more likely to regret changing their answer than not changing their answer. And so, um, even though changing your answer almost always leads to a better score, so change your answer. That's my tactical test taking advice. And then finally, on the broader life advice, um, well, I mean, you've given me the entree to talk about sports by talking about the Wizards. So let me talk about the Washington Nationals. And and uh, and and this is, I think, I think really good advice. And I will verify how seriously I take this advice. So in 2019, in the early part of the baseball season, the Washington Nationals were not doing very well. They had one of the worst records in the major leagues. That year, they ended up winning the World Series, but they didn't turn around immediately. And in the depths of this terrible season, where it looked like in May the whole season was lost. The Nationals manager, Davey Johnson, Davey, no, Davey Martinez, Davey Johnson was the earlier manager. Davey Martinez said something that I thought was really profound and goes to some of your earlier points, Dustin, um, which is this. He said to his team, don't think about the season. Let's just go 1-0 today. Go 1-0 today. And, um, and then what do you do the next day? We're going to go 1-0 that day too. And, it, and, and that small win approach i think is powerful and it's so much that even on i'll show for the for the viewers here i'm going to show you that my whiteboard which is a gray board right above my desk forgive you can see there it says oh what a note today <laughs> yeah 
So that's what I've tried to do. Um, and so it goes, you know, very much to, you know, you should know your transcendent purpose and so forth, but just anything you're doing, whether you're trying to turn around a school, whether you're trying to teach a group of seventh graders algebra, whether you're trying to write a book, whether you're trying to enliven an entire school district, go one to know today. That's your job. That's awesome. Well, we're trying to get to know our, our guests a little bit better this year. So that was one way definitely that we stumbled into it of go one note a day on your whiteboard. Are there any habits or disciplines that you do on a daily basis that you think contribute to you being in the right mindset to go one to know that day? I mean, I experiment with a lot of different, I experiment with a lot of different stuff. Uh, one of the things that I do try to do, I actually didn't do it today, um, is, um, um, cause I'm, I'm looking at my list of, of things to do for the day. So here it is. I'm still pretty analog. I use pencil and paper. Um, and, um, but oftentimes what I'll do is uh, on a, most days, actually, when I have a list of things to do, I will write at the very top of it, MIT for most important task and just make sure that I hit that most important task. Um, um, rather than go to the, like, like on this list today, there's no way I'm going to get all this stuff done today. Yep. Um, and so rather than sort of pick at the things that are less important, but that give me the satisfaction of crossing it off of a list, I make sure that I focus on my MIT. What's my most important task. That's great. Uh, what, what about what books do you read or what authors are you reading right now that you really like to, to go back to or, Oh, I, I read pretty widely. Um, uh, I guess the, I just finished the no, a novel called, I read a lot of fiction. Uh, 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 I just finished a, it's a pop novel called um, uh, The Other Black Girl, uh, which is about the publishing industry. It's a really, really good, really good novel. I, I read a couple of other sort of pop novels recently that were less good. It was sort of just, I was sort of disappointed. Um, and then right now I'm in, um, um, every once in a while I take on, one of these like ginormous biographies. And now I'm in the middle of a, well, in the middle, in the first third, I've got like, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, I, I've read like 300 pages of dense material and I'm only a third of the way into this 940 page biography, but I'm reading a biography of, of uh, Andy Warhol, who I've always been fascinated by. That's awesome. And you're saying that I thought you were going to go down the Isaacson train. So are these longer books than Isaacson puts out or? Uh, yeah, no, those are pretty long too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are pretty long too. I've been meaning to read. I have never read the, I haven't read the Ben Franklin book. That's on my list. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, when I was running a executive director of a, a local nonprofit in St. Louis called Teach for America and Walter Isaacson was our national board chair. So I got a chance to meet him during his Einstein book and have oh, yeah. followed him ever since. Um, Last question. I don't know if you're a music lover, but I'm always curious to what type of music you listen to or what what type of uh, music would be on your playlist. Well, that is what we call an empirical question. So let's take a look. <laughs> uh, um, I have um, I'll show you my um, so this might be <laughs> embarrassing, but let's just go to my. So here's my my. Here we go. So this is my treadmill list. I like that. Uh, so it's a fairly eclectic list of artists. So I'll give it to you in um, no particular order, just the order they happen to appear on this list. We've got, you want the artist or the song? How about the uh -huh. artist? I'll take the artist. How about that? Okay. So it's embarrassing. Um, 
It's basically uh, so. Okay, so I've got uh, Public Enemy, uh, Mark Ronson, Eminem, Childish Gambino, yeah. uh, Tones and I, another Public Enemy. But now I'm being more like middle aged white guy here. I got the Knack, uh, Lizzo. I'm a. I, I, I think that Lizzo is one of the the most talented performers in the world today. I think she's extraordinary. She uh, but then, but again, I'm going to go back to my middle-aged white guy thing. Uh, I got Cool in the Gang, Tom Petty, Ario Speedwagon, Bob Seger. So I'm, I'm I love it. Uh, but I've also got James Brown, uh, and then um, a very good uh, band. I think it's like a more like a '90s band. Uh, good writers uh, called uh, uh, Fountains of Wayne. Oh, I know them absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I appreciate it. Um, I think people are going to start going back to listen to a couple of those now. <laughs> uh, well, I promise you, I would get you out of here in time. Uh, we've got a little bit of time to ask. Are you going back? Cause I know where you went to undergrad. Are you going to uh, Wrigley uh, Field this year to watch them play? Uh, who are they playing? Illinois. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm a Northwestern graduate and Northwestern now is a tradition where they play a, a college football game at Wrigley Field, which sounds yeah. spectacular. Yes. I, I am not unfortunately going this year, but but one of these days I will. Uh, I I, uh, I guess they're playing Purdue this year. That's who they're playing. That's probably why you may not be going back. I, I work in Indiana quite a bit and my good friend. Oh, okay. Um, so her and all our friends are going and she's like, I don't even know who they're playing. I'm like, well, if it's at Wrigley, I'm pretty sure you're playing Northwestern. So yeah, I, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great, in a, that's a great sports innovation. I'm, I'm psyched about that. Wrigley, Wrigley Field is a, is a, um, is a pretty uh, amazing place. Oh, it's. Uh, I, I, my, my, uh, my parents are both Chicagoans, and when I was a little kid, um, like, I, like I, I, my experience of Wrigley is before it had lights when I was a little kid. Wow. I know it's hard to imagine today because Wrigley got lights what in like the mid '80s or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but I, um, but I, uh, I, I've never been to a night game at Wrigley, but put it that way. I will say it's fun. I'm a, I'm a, a transplant to St. Louis, but I've been here about 20 years. Um, and so my wife, uh, and our family are diehard cards fans. So we've made our few, uh, we probably make up a trip every year or two up to Wrigley to watch a game. It's the best place to watch baseball. That's for sure. It's a great place. Well, Dan, thanks for your time today. It was an awesome uh, conversation. My uh, 40th birthday is tomorrow. And so... Uh, oh, happy birthday. I know we had to reschedule, but this is a heck of a way uh, for me to, to celebrate. So I appreciate you very much making time for us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.